You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Voters on the Big Island have spoken. They have chosen their next mayor. Former prosecuting attorney Mitch Roth secured 57% of the county's vote to edge out his opponent, businessman Ikaika Marzo. Roth will face a number of challenges, including a battered economy due to COVID-19, a worsening homeless problem, and questions over the use of public land. He spoke with uh, the Conversations producer Harrison Patino about his plan. Yeah, I think as with everything else, um, the economy is going to be really difficult. Make sure that we get people back to work safely, dealing with COVID, and then, you know, the budget. Where are we going to be for next year? Not so much the first six months, but making the budget for next year, knowing that the state has, I think, about a $2 billion shortfall. What's going to happen as far as some of the state funds that come to the counties? Well, you've said that unless additional federal funds come in, the county's going to need to seek new revenue sources. So, what are your plans to offset this uh, projected shortfall or possibly create new opportunities of revenue? You know, there's a couple of different things that we can do. You know, Hawaii County has been seen as really anti-business. We need to change that uh, that image to something that's more pro-business, allowing people to get their businesses up on a timely fashion. So a lot of that has to do with making sure that the permitting process is working and that people aren't waiting long periods of times and having that knowledge that if they follow the rules, that they're going to be able to get a start. So that's one of the big things that's hopefully will get more businesses running, more businesses meaning more people are working, putting food on their tables and paying their taxes. The other thing that we need to do is we need to do a lot better job of going after grant funds, whether they're earmarked or whether they're competitive funds. Uh, we need to have a cadre of grant writers actually going after and being aggressively, uh, going after those funds aggressively. So those are just you know a couple of the ideas making sure that you know tourism is going, but also diversifying our economy and looking at things like um, entrepreneurial accelerators and incubators to help people scale their products to, to market. Now, and, going along you know, with that economic thread, COVID-19 has obviously devastated Hawaii's tourism industry, the Big Island being a big part of that. What strategies are you really hoping to employ in nursing the industry back to health while still keeping health and safety guidelines in place? Yeah, you know, Hawaii County is actually in a different uh, place than the rest of the state. Our hotels represent 4.4% of our real property taxes that the county collects. And, you know, the property taxes, that is the lion's share of our of our budget. So we have less hotels. Luckily, the hotels that we have are generally of a higher quality. And so we expect those people to be coming back. But we want to make sure that we are using this time as a pause to start uh, making sure that we have more quality tourist experiences, whether that's looking into envirotourism, whether we're looking into cultural tourism, making sure that we're actually showing people what Hawaii should be versus you know, a watered-down Hawaii. We have a great agricultural diversity here and you know that, that to agritourism. So we have a couple of different things that we can do there, but also making sure that the experience that tourists have is a quality experience. If people are paying a lot of money, we should be making sure that you know, they have the resources to have a, a quality experience here. Well, it's interesting you bring up that idea of quality over quantity as uh, with regards to tourism, this idea that tourism really isn't everything here, especially in Hawaii. COVID-19 mm -hmm. has really forced the state to rethink everything from existing infrastructure to its main economic drivers. With that in mind, in terms of rethinking infrastructure, what changes in store do you hope to approach as mayor? Well, you know, uh, on our island, we know that uh, the majority of the money that comes into our island from Tourists is going to be on the West Hawaii side. However, infrastructure-wise, we haven't really done a great job of making sure that the infrastructure is up to up to par. And so, maybe a little bit of a different approach, looking to West Hawaii to make sure that our infrastructure is up to par. There's a, a lot of things that we need to look at on that side. And the whole island's infrastructure needs to be brought up. Where we focus uh, will be important. And so, in the past, people have seen a lot of focus on the, the Hilo side, which is the county seat, actually where I live. Uh, with very little focus on the Kona side. I think we need to focus around the island, not just necessarily on one side versus the other, but we know that a lot of our tourists are going to come to Kona, so we want to make sure that what they're seeing over there is more quality and, and uh, better infrastructure. Now, we've seen the implementation of this Safe Travels program that is trying to bring back tourists from international venues and more tourists from within the country. But there's been some sort of a disagreement among the different mayors of how exactly inter island quarantine should be handled or testing checks should be handled. What's your sense about how that should be handled in, on uh, the Big Island? A lot of the funds that have been used for our testing have come from the CARES Act. And I think everybody goes into a new phase 
as of December 15th. The monies have to be spent by December 31st, but I think payroll ends on December 15th. So I think we're going to need to really look at and assess what is effective, uh, what's not effective. You know, it's nice that we have the ability to test people when they get here again. I don't know if we're going to have the funds to do that. We're, we're talking to, to some other sources to see if we can make that happen. But we may have to do a reassessment based on what funds and what our ability is. And that's going to be seen probably after December 15th and whether we get new funding from the federal government or not. Now, we've seen a sizable chunk of that CARES money go towards helping rehabilitate small businesses that have been affected by the pandemic. And the looming question is, what happens when that money runs out? So at the county level, what are some key ways to aid these hurting small businesses that you can identify as mayor? I think that goes back to making sure that we change the philosophy of government to a government that helps people thrive and succeed and, you know, rather than just tries to control. A big part of our problem has been in our permitting process. So as businesses try to get up and running, if they're waiting for a permit for, say, a year and they're paying rent in that time, it's difficult for a business to thrive and succeed. So, you know, we want to make some changes there. We want to make sure that the government is actually a partner in trying to help businesses succeed, trying to help people thrive in their lives. And so I think it's really just a different philosophy that we need to take. Wherever there's adversity, there's always an equal or greater opportunity. And I think that we have a lot of great opportunities, and we just need to think a little bit differently. Give an example, dealing with businesses that, that would like to have meals outdoors. A lot of times the permitting for that is very difficult to get through. I think we need to make those kinds of things happen so people can have restaurants where people are eating, you know, maybe on the sidewalks. We know that it's safer for people to eat outdoors as far as COVID because outdoor the air is flowing a little bit more freely. We know that sometimes you have businesses, uh, well, you can't drink alcohol outside. Maybe we need to change some of those rules that allow restaurants to have alcohol kind of outside and, and maybe put up stanchions where people can, can do that. So I, I think we need to look at government to ways that we can help people and businesses thrive. To that effect, there's been a lot of criticism on the island of Oahu for Mayor Kirk Caldwell for not using a more laser-like approach and doling out safety guidelines and regulations in the case of particularly restaurants and bars. Now, to say nothing of your Oahu County contemporary, do you believe that a laser-like approach is what's needed to deal properly with issues like this? Being intentional is important in anything that you do. And I see a lot of times in government, the problem that we have is we've always done it that way. And when I, when I hear that, I always want to ask the Dr. Phil question, which is, how's that working for you? And if it's not, you need to change. And oftentimes it will take a laser-like focus to say, okay, wh- why is this not working in, in this kind of thing? And then go out there and make changes. So in the previous administration of Mayor Harry Kim, there was something of a hesitance to implement certain restrictions on the Big Island that were seen on other islands. And this hesitance was due to the sheer size of the county and the difficulty in enforcing such regulations. Curfews in particular come to mind. Do you agree with that approach? My job right now is I'm a prosecuting attorney. And as a prosecuting attorney, one of the things we have to look at is, do we have the elements to prove cases beyond a reasonable doubt? And a lot of the things that have been put out, for example, the mask, uh, ordinances and things like that, oftentimes they're very difficult. And so I, I look at practicality. Can it be done? Can we legally do it? And is it the right thing to do? So just take the one issue of curfews. I think there was a time when curfews made a lot of sense. But we are learning so much about you know this, this disease and what's good and what's, what's not good. You know, th- things are changing from month to month. And we're definitely in a different place than we were in, in March as we're here in November. So a time back, if I was mayor, I probably would have imposed a curfew. At this time, probably not. Switching gears here, obviously homelessness remains one of the state's key issues. As you're coming into the mayoral seat, what are your plans to address the crisis in your administration? One of the things that we've seen across the country is housing first is a best practice. We have been trying to get homeless housing for a while. That is starting to happen. We're starting to see that actually take place. The next part of that we need to make sure we're not just housing people, but we're helping people move from temporary to a more permanent housing situation. Part of that is making sure we have one-stop shops, for, for example, drug treatment or mental health treatment or job training or things like that. 
and we need to make sure that those are in the same place where the housing is. And so that is one of the things I'm, I'm looking at. Homelessness is a symptom of other problems, and one of the, the bigger problems that we look at is, I'll put it in different categories. We know about adverse childhood experiences, or ACE scores. When people have adverse childhood experiences, if they have a, a lot of those experiences, they're more likely to be homeless at a later time. They're also more likely to be involved with drug abuse, other kinds of crime, sex assault, domestic. So we need to address some of those adverse childhood experiences. The number one childhood experience that's going to be an adverse childhood experience in Hawaii County is domestic violence. And so one of the things that we're going to look at doing is seeing how we can work with our nonprofits a little bit better, treat domestic violence as a real community problem versus just a woman's problem. Um, I think for too long people have seen it as a woman's problem and it really hasn't got the attention that it needs. Another root cause of homelessness that we're seeing are our veterans who are coming out with PTSD and a lack of treatment. We should never have a homeless veteran. Our veterans are the only ones who paid a price for our freedom. It's pretty much a blank check with everything up to and including their life. So we need to do a better job of making sure our veterans are being taken care of and so they're not homeless as well. So homelessness, the first stage is housing services, but also to look and uh, be proactive rather than reactive to things that cause homelessness. Now, on a final note here, obviously as mayor, you're going to be inheriting the very divisive issue of the 30-meter telescope. Now, with COVID-19, that issue has been pushed to the sidelines in some way, but it still remains a controversial topic and likely will for some time in the future in both Hawaii County and the state as a whole. So how are you looking to approach this? Let me start off by saying I support the 30-meter telescope and I support astronomy. I believe that they both bring economic and educational opportunities for people of this island. I think it, they represent the best opportunity to ensure that our keiki are able to raise their keiki on this island. I also understand there are many in the Hawaiian community that have uh, long-standing issues with stewardship of the mountain, which you know I think we need to, to, to deal with. However, the issue of Mauna Kea and TNT is really a state issue. The governor is in charge of the mountain. The state agencies the agencies that are in charge of the mountain are all state agencies, not county agencies. And so whether TMT is built or not, it's not going to be a county issue. It will be a decision for the governor and TMT. As mayor, I believe I have a couple of different roles. One is to be an advocate, and the other is to bring people together, to have real open, honest discussions, and look for solutions. You know, there's some big issues that we really need to discuss. Um, there's the issues of ahus and evies that you know, were destroyed, and we've never really, honestly, have had those discussions. I think we need to address those things so we can move forward. That was Hawaii County Mayor-elect Mitch Roth. He was talking with the Conversations producer Harrison Patino about the challenges ahead as he prepares to take office. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dowling Company. For more than three decades, working to develop housing projects for the Maui community and committed to building in balance. Proud to support Hawaii Public Radio. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that make us a part of their communication strategy. Le Jardin Academy, State Foundation on Culture and the Arts, and Tori Richard. They believe, just as you do in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii State Art Museum. A new exhibit, Four Walls, explores the ways artists engage and enliven enclosed spaces. Open to the public Monday to Saturday, hisam.hawaii.gov. We continue to talk post-election on the Big Island. Joining us is our regular contributor, Sherry Bracken. Well, there were some remarkable things about the Hawaii County election, Catherine, 
first of all, we had 127,000 voters register, and we had just over 85,000 voters vote. And that was around 20,000 more people than voted in the primary and more than we've had in at least 20 or 30 years. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I think that's just the most awesome thing. I mean, to, to know that our turnout is so much better than it was. Yeah. You know, and I know that we did have a contentious presidential election, and that might have influenced it. But certainly in Honolulu County and in Hawaii County, we had really important issues and candidates. And I'm just hoping that people keep up their habit now of voting and doing it, particularly because we can vote by mail. Yes. And so you've got the ease of that. The thing about this year, it was the first year. Some people may not have fully understood that voting by mail was the thing. And obviously, way too many people voted on the last day in person, certainly in Honolulu County. But even here in Hawaii County, we actually, though, out of all the 85,168 voters, only had 4,600 voters vote in person. But a lot of them were on the last day. And we're going to talk about one reason, and that is we had 16 charter amendments It took a long time for people as they voted to wade through the 16 charter amendments, particularly if they've not even looked at them before. So hopefully in the future they will know that they should look. And what was your sense of how it went that last day when it was very crowded? Because I know they had issues in the Hilo side, but what was the experience there on the west side? And and did people come to the polls? Did they do their homework? Well, I think that's why it took so long. You know, Hilo didn't close until about 8.30, should have closed at 7. Kona closed a little bit late, but the situation in Kona was probably similar to what it was in Hilo, which is I talked to some of the poll workers there, and then I talked to a few people leaving, and they took a really long time to vote. And it was not because of the candidates. We didn't have that many candidates to vote for. It was because of the 16 charter amendments, because, as you know, when you read a charter amendment, It's not always fully clear what it means, and people were thinking about it. So what I'd really like to see all the counties do is, if there are charter amendments in the future, send something out in advance, not just with what the amendment is, but maybe the pros and cons, because that's what helped me. I talked in advance. I did an Island Conversations interview with members of the League of Women Voters, and they went through the pros and cons for each of these based on what people had said when they testified. And that was super helpful because a few of them were not clear what they really would do. And we'll talk about those. Let's break it down. What are some of the most controversial ones of those uh, initiatives? There were three that related to the county council itself, and they were pretty interesting. One just codifies that council meetings will be split between East Hawaii and West Hawaii. They already are, but this puts it into law. But the other two relating to the county council are especially interesting One was to allow the county council to discipline its members by suspending them without pay if they're disorderly or they don't show up to three or more council meetings. 81% of the people voted yes on this, and this was clearly put on the ballot because a couple of years ago, the council member from Puna, Jen Ruggles, decided the county of Hawaii was an illegal entity, and the state was, so she just stopped going to council meetings. She did not stop however, collecting her salary. And during that time, her district was not represented. She didn't show up to vote. She didn't submit legislation. So it's clear why that one passed, and the council can now discipline members. And the other one relating to the county council was to change the terms from the current two years to four years. And people voted no on that. And frankly, it's possible this might have passed if not for the Jen Ruggles situation. People saw how bad that was when she'd only been in office 18 months, and they only had to address this for six months of not being represented. But I think that just made it super clear that four years was too long. So, Who would ever think that you'd come up with a situation like that where you'd be without representation? You know, nobody even considered it. You just, it's the ethical thing to do, to do your job. But it turned out there's no way to force somebody to do their job, and now there is. And then something else that was very much in the public eye, two proposals relating to the county's public access, open space, and natural resources preservation maintenance fund. Currently, two and a quarter percent of our existing property taxes go automatically to the fund. And there's around $20 million in the fund now. And that will continue. Two and a quarter percent of our property taxes go to the fund. 
but the two charter amendments were to move management from the Department of Park and Rec, which didn't want the responsibility, to the Finance Department, which does want the responsibility. And that amendment also provided that you can use the fund money not just for land purchase, but for maintenance or building a storage shed for tools or maybe putting a lua on the property if there's going to be people going there. So that passed. And then the other amendment relating to the open space fund was allowing for a staff person to be paid for out of the open space monies. So that person would be solely dedicated to looking for matching grant funds, to researching the appropriate properties, and a lot of people voted yes for that, I believe, because it was felt that it was kind of a neglected thing up till now. There wasn't really anybody on the council or finance or park and rec staff who was really doing that work. So I think people are probably pretty happy about that getting clarified. What about just on the general council races? We had two council races. One was in Pune, the incumbent Matt Kaneali Kleinfelder running against challenger Ikaika Rodenhurst. And Ikaika was a very strong challenger, and Matt won, but only by a few hundred votes. You know, that just tells Matt he needs to do a little more outreach to the community. And the other council race that had a kind of surprising result was the empty seat for Hamakua, empty because Valerie Poindexter, who'd been there for eight years, has term limited out. And the candidates were Dominic Yagong, who had held that seat for about 12 years, and Heather Kimball, who has run for office before. And she won handily. She brings a new perspective. She's kind of a progressive Democrat. She has good ideas about how to address things like our current lack of jobs. And I think that a lot of people just assumed Dominic because he had been there, and he also had been there when sugar shut down, which was another time of real economic upset, that he would win. So he did not. So we have a new council member there, and that will be very interesting. You know, there were a few more charter amendments that were interesting again goes back to the wording and one was shall the charter amend fire department functions and fire chief qualifications and on functions yes it formalized the fact that they currently handle all water safety so that was a definite yes but fire chief qualifications they put in something that the fire chief from now on has to have the equivalent of a bachelor's degree and it's not so clear that was a good idea because there's no definition as to what equivalent means, and the fire chief would have to have that, whereas the police chief would not. So that, again, it goes back to the wording of the Charter Amendment does not always explain the true intent or what would be good or bad. And in the future, again, I know League of Women Voters has been pushing for this forever. It'd be great to have pros and cons get sent out to everybody in the community. That was Big Island journalist Sherry Bracken talking about the county's general election results. now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Reporter Blaze Lovell has a story about progress being made in training our state sheriffs. Good morning, Blaze. Morning, Catherine. So this is all about raising the bar. This is about raising the bar to a national standard, and this story really begins all the way back in 2010, and basically it starts with an audit of the sheriff's division. The sheriff's division is housed in what's called the Department of Public Safety, and basically this audit found that the sheriff's uh, division, it suffers from a few ailments. It's it cited uh, ineffective leadership at the top. It cited a lack of direction for the department, and one of the cures for all of this the audit said was to get accreditation from this. Um, it, it's a lengthy name now. It's called the Commission for Accreditation for Law Enforcement Agencies. We call it CALEA. 
And the reason why they want clear accreditation is it makes sure that the sheriff's division, which is in charge of things like um, uh, the courts, the state capitol, protecting the governor and lieutenant governor, it makes sure that that division is up to the standards for most police across the country or law enforcement officers across the country. All four of our county police departments have this, um, but the sheriff's division does not. Well, you know, at least, you know, law enforcement jobs are 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 tough jobs, you know, and, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, an adult correctional officer, you know, in the prisons or a a beat officer on the street uh, or at the state, you know, sheriff's division. I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult to attract people. It's absolutely difficult. And uh, this accreditation is actually something that the sheriffs themselves have called for over the years and um, uh, this story we have this morning it's kind of an update to one we ran in 2019 that first raised the you know issue of the sheriffs not having this accreditation even though it was required by law back in 2011 and at the time I talked to a lot of sheriffs and you know they were disgruntled that uh, you know they weren't able to get this accreditation they didn't know what was taking so long but uh, after our story and the legislature made it a a point to raise this during Nolan Spindler's confirmation hearing in 2019. The department finally got the ball rolling last December, and now they're in the midst of trying to get the sheriffs that accreditation. Right, I mean, because it's been like, what, a decade now, right? Uh, it's just about a decade. That law uh, came in in about 2000. 11 from a form, now former state representative, and it, it got pretty good support in the legislature. Um, the reason why they wanted it was to follow up on those um, those audit recommendations. Uh, but there was no uh, there, there was no mechanism in the law to really force the department to do it. Uh, a former legislator, Willis Sparrow, we talked about this. Uh, uh, he he said that the department really has to want to do it. And uh, we'll see. We'll start to see whether or not they really want to do it. It appears that they do. Well, you know, I recall there was that one, you know, high-profile case. I believe that it was a an inmate who was trying to escape. I think there, you know, one of the uh, sheriffs I think shot the man, and then instead of just uh, having the investigation take over on the scene of the crime, <laughs> you know, not the crime, but the shooting, I should say, that uh, they took the inmate back to the facility. So, you know, I, I immediately thought, well, wait a minute, you know, what's the training? What's the protocol? Uh, but it's just those kinds of things that, that make you wonder, you know, uh, how well trained are our officers, our sheriffs? Mm-hmm. The, those two incidents is actually what kind of, you, you know, started this whole thing with uh, the public safety department, and you raised those two good points, training and protocols and this is one of the reasons why the sheriffs have wanted this accreditation so badly is training and protocols are some of the things that the Kalea standards uh, address and making sure that the department policies and the procedures and how they do things everything from how they file documents related to oaths, oaths of office to how they conduct internal investigations to how they conduct investigations into shootings those are all covered under Kalea which would review all those procedures and make sure that they're up to standards that you'd see anywhere else in the country. All right. Well, let's hope that they get the support that they need. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's reality chat. You can read his full story at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More information at proservice.com slash coronavirus. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Hirsch Wilson, author of Firefighter Zen. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about a firefighter's thoughts on thriving in tough times. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The new exhibition, Okalani, features works by Native Hawaiian artists Sean K.L. Brown and Imai Kalani Kalahele through January 3rd. 
honolulumuseum.org. Throughout the COVID-19 crisis, you know, we've heard stories of sea life returning to Hawaii's nearshore waters as fewer humans play in the water. Well, one example is Oahu's Hanama Bay, where researchers have seen the fish return. But results may be different next door at Mauna Loa Bay, which stretches six miles from Portlock to Black Point. Uh, above the bay is home to 60,000 people, and their runoff ends up in the bay. The State Department of Health and the EPA conducted a water quality study at 180 points in the bay last year and just released those numbers. Doug Harper is the executive director of Malama Mauna Loa. The group was founded in 2005 by longtime community members who'd seen the bay degrade during their lifetimes. Harper spoke with the Conversations producer, Jason Ubai, about the study. So the studies were released uh, earlier this year, and there was just a wealth of information that came out of it. As I mentioned, it was the largest water quality study in, in state history, and 180 points, 170 points, somewhere in there, were taken both near shore and offshore, and it gave us a ton of information. It started as a project that EPA and Department of Health wanted to see what the differences were between nearshore pollution and offshore pollution. And so the Department or the Department of Health worked with the University of Hawaii and the Nature Conservancy, and then they partnered with Malama Monalua to do this in, in Monalua Bay. And what we found, um, we studied everything from the chemicals to the physical, and we found that as expected, the nearshore was much more polluted than the offshore, but we also found a lot of interesting aspects of a lot of the pollution we're finding is coming from groundwater, is coming from things that have passed through the subterranean as opposed to what most people think of where pollution comes from, which would be over land. And so what that tells us is that some of the things we studied, things like different drugs like ibuprofen, as well as enterococcus, which is a bacteria, all those things are coming most likely from cesspools in the Montalua Bay area. And so even though we went in the dry season when you would expect there to be less pollution because of this underground connection, which Montalua Bay is very fortunate to have a lot of freshwater springs, but with that comes a lot of groundwater pollution from people who have put stuff on their lawns, put stuff into cesspools that seep into the uh, groundwater and then finds its way out to the bay. Can you contrast that with Hanama Bay? We've been hearing a lot about how there's no visitors going over there right now, so it's been, uh, you know, a lot cleaner and seeing a lot of restoration and more fish coming back and those sorts of things. What are you seeing at Malua Bay right now? Yeah, so Hanama has had some really interesting studies about the fish behavior and how the absence of people have really um, brought back, I guess, a more natural um, behavior from the fish and brought them in closer to shore. And in Monolua Bay, you know, part of the challenge we have is even if people aren't utilizing the bay at the same levels, which I'm not saying that they aren't, but water quality is a major issue. And even if people aren't accessing the water, all of that pollution coming from the land is still continuing. And so we continue to have that water quality issue. But then there's still been people fishing and diving and utilizing the bay at a fairly heavy level because it's in a very populated area and we can't and don't want to completely shut it off from everyone being able to access it. It's part of the enjoyment of living in Montalua Bay. We've heard anecdotally of people mentioning different um, marine species, turtles that are coming in closer to shore and, and different species that they're seeing that they may not have seen before. But those are just anecdotal, and none of the studies that were done in Hanama have been done in Monolua. So I don't know that we're going to be able to contrast as easily, but it is exciting to hear that, you know, nature will rebound if the proper management is done. And while Hanama is somewhat of an extreme case, because you have a protected area that can completely shut people off, it does demonstrate that it will rebound. It's not beyond the ability to protect it and, and restore it. You're talking about water quality. What are some of the things that Malama Manalua is doing with, as an organization and with volunteers to you know, help with the water quality and restore the bay? There's a, a lot that we've undertaken because, you know, as I've mentioned, water quality is a major issue for the bay. 
uh, we're looking at some of the infrastructural issues in the bay. So all of the surrounding watersheds, with the exception of Wailupe, have their streams paved and channelized. And, and this leads to pollution more easily accessing uh, the bay. But how people can help is, you know, one of the things this study demonstrated, the water quality study in 2019 I mentioned, is that everyone up in the watershed is connected to the bay. So people may think that they're a long ways from the bay, you know, maybe be farther up in the watershed, but even when it's not raining, what they're putting on their land is going into the groundwater and coming out, coming out in the bay. And so we have an initiative called the Cherish, Protect, Restore, the Ahukwa of Monolua Bay, and shorthand CPR Monolua.com. And this is a partnership with over 20 organizations and a number of businesses. And every month, we highlight different actions that people can do at home. And the actions are very simple. This month, it's Arbor Day um, this month. And so it's just plant a tree on your land. Trees are fantastic for addressing runoff. And so if people do that, go to the CPRMonolua.com, do the action. They tag themselves, either let us know through the website or let us know through Instagram. And then they get discounts at area businesses, some of them being things like Growlers is offering a $20 voucher for people who do some of these actions, which we're doing in a giveaway. Uh, Cafe Asia is offering discounts. And so there's ways to help improve the Bay through this initiative, but also giving discounts and monetary benefit for them. Another option is our Huki program. So our Huki program is, is probably our flagship and best known uh, initiative that we do. And people can come down uh, on Saturdays that we do it and remove invasive algae. And this is important because it not only helps restore the nearshore habitat, it's something that leather mudweed is the species that we target. And it is not only a low food source for fish, so it, it is something that the native species don't like, but it also drastically alters the local conditions. And so you have more sedimentation, more pollution, all these water quality that we've been talking about is exacerbated by leather mudweed, which traps it in the nearshore where people you know, swim and snorkel. And so they can come out to one of our program or one of our Huki events and help us remove the algae and not only restore the local environment, but also improve the water quality in the process. And so COVID has affected that a little bit, but we're starting to kind of slowly open back up doing small Huki where families or small groups can come out, you know, assuming it all fits with the state of Hawaii and city and county COVID requirements. Obviously, your organization's focused on Monolua Bay, but what do you think this work means for other communities in the state? I think all of the communities in the state, all of the work that's being done in each of those communities is a really good lesson for all of the other groups working in the state. So what Malama Monolua is doing is beneficial not for just the Monolua Bay area, but it also shows how it can be done for some of these other communities working in other parts of the state. And it shows, you know, it essentially becomes for us and all these other organizations, a way to test different methods to see how you can improve, for instance, near shore waters, how you can improve water quality, how you can reduce pollution coming from the land. And so what Malama Monolua is doing is really taking a, a hard look at a very urban area in the state and trying to identify methods that we can do given our environment to improve the bay. And what we learn can easily be extrapolated out to not just the rest of Oahu, but other islands who can see that, okay, well, our volunteer effort has been hugely successful, so let's pattern it after that, or we can look to them and say, okay, well, their fish study was incredible. Let's try and replicate that here. And so what's really neat about Hawaii is how interconnected all of these communities and organizations are and sharing information and lessons learned. So as a state, we continue to improve based on the lessons everyone has learned along the way. There's a lot of challenges that are confronting not just Monolua Bay, but all of these other parts of the state. So wherever people live, you know, in Hawaii and frankly the world, you know, we're confronting massive challenges from degradation that has been taking place over decades 
to looking to the future things like climate change that are going to drastically impact the health of our resources. And I think a big lesson and something that I want people to take home is that while these are massive challenges, everything can be addressed through small things that people do at home. You know, yeah, there are some big challenges that are just going to take um, big ideas and big action, but a lot of it, for instance, with Montalua Bay, runoff is a major, major problem. It's a something that everyone can help address at their house. So, you know, looking if you have a cesspool to, you know, reach out to Malama Montalua, reach out to some of these organizations that are concerned with wastewater and see how you can modify your cesspool to be more environmentally friendly. And if you have a yard or, you know, have a house or anything like that, there's a lot of things that you can do that are very simple and cost effective that will have a profound effect on the health of the base. So while we have these major challenges, you know, it's, it's just little bites at the apple. And if everyone does that, we really can flip this around and, you know, lead to a brighter future despite all of these seemingly dark and harrowing stories we hear in the media. That was Doug Harper, Executive Director of Malama Maunalua. Since the organization's inception, its hookie program has removed 3.5 million pounds of invasive algae, which has been donated to local farmers for compost. To learn more about volunteering and getting involved with Malama Maunalua, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, serving the islands for 150 years through job creation and civic support. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii with a commitment to respect Hawaii's communities, people, cultures, and environment. First-generation and low-income students face a lot of hurdles getting through college. There's the financial cost. But I think something we don't talk about is that for students, it can be very difficult emotionally and psychologically and ethically to make it. How the American dream pushes some people to leave family and friends behind. This week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7, following says you. Support for HPR comes from Aloha Air Cargo, wishing all safe and warm holidays, announcing a new Seattle location, offering five flights weekly from Honolulu to Seattle Tacoma Airport. AlohaAirCargo.com. Today, we throw the spotlight on a native Hawaiian snail that was previously thought to be extinct. It turns out that the family of mollusks didn't even have a name, but scientists at the Bishop Museum worked to fix that, naming the snail for someone who has long studied them. We talked to Noreen Young, the mollusk curator at the Bishop Museum, as well as Kenneth Hayes, head of the Pacific Center for Mollusk Biodiversity, which stores genetic materials for snail specimens found all across the Pacific. We recently gave the name describing a new species of Hawaiian land snail, and it's new in the sense that it's just gotten a name. It's been known for nearly 100 years. It was first discovered by Bishop Museum researchers in around 1924 or so on the island of Nihoa. And this is a snail that's endemic to the island of Nihoa, and it, it had never been formally described and given a name in a scientific publication. So it's sort of gone on name for 96 years. So we recently put together the information needed to give that a name. So what does the snail look like? It's about the size of a little smaller than, say, a dime in diameter. It's a very flat coiling thing. It's tannish color as the base. And then it's got tiger stripes, what we like to call flammulations or tiger flaming pattern to it. So it's got like tiger stripes and sort of a reddish brown going around it. It's quite a beautiful little snail. As far as the whole process of actually naming it, what's involved in that? To name a snail, particularly in modern times, you really need to make sure that it actually is new to science, that you're not giving something a name that already has a name that someone else has already described. So that involves comparing it against everything else in that family or in that group that's already been named. So you've got to track all that material down. 
Then you also have to look at its anatomy. So you've got to do some dissections and look at its reproductive anatomy primarily because that's the feature that's often used in snails to distinguish among species. And in this case, we use a lot of genetic tools as well. So we try to develop DNA sequences that can also be compared to other species so that we know it actually is a distinct species. So all of that is involved. We also take really good photographs of the shell so that we can characterize it. And in this case, we used a technique called micro-CT, which is almost like an X-ray, except it, it allows you to just visualize the hard structures and the internal structures of a shell without having to break it open or anything. So it's like a, a really high-resolution X-ray. And we use that technique as well to characterize the shell morphology. Noreen, describe how you came across this. We had these shells that were first collected in the early 1920s by other Bishop Museum researchers. And we also had specimens that were collected in 1980 by then curator Dr. Carl Christensen. And so these specimens were in this collection for quite a while without an actual description or a name. And so I was able to facilitate in helping with all of our colleagues in providing a description and a name for this snail. And so tell us, and then you folks just started working on this, I guess, right as the shutdown happened. We've been talking about this for more than a year, actually, but we recognized that this was sort of, a, of importance, and it was partly precipitated by the fact that a group of researchers doing seabird counts and seabird conservation and rat eradication were going back to the island, and we saw this as a perfect opportunity to get the kind of fresh material we needed to do genetics for the specimen. And so that's what prompted us, and that trip was made earlier in the year because we had that new material. It was like, okay, well, let's move forward with this. Let's get a name on this so we can begin to develop a conservation plan for it because we were concerned that with climate change and other factors impacting native species that we might not get another chance for another five or ten years, and it could be gone by then. So we really started pushing in early March right as the shutdown hit to try to push forward with this. Noreen, can you describe the type of material that they were able to bring back from Nehoa? Originally from Dr. Cook and such, they um, brought back shells as well as shells with the body in it. And also uh, Dr. Christensen was able to do so also. And so with the recent collections by Dr. Dave Sisko, another co-author and collaborator on this manuscript, he also brought back individuals in which we could compare to those earlier collections to make sure that we could verify that it is the same species and to start putting together all of the historical information about their habitat so that we could have a better assessment of their conservation. And do we have a sense as to how large the population is on the island? I don't know how tricky it was for them to collect what they what they brought back with them. I mean, was it just like a half a dozen or a dozen of these snails? Dr. Cisco was able to go through most of the area throughout Nihoa because it's not actually a very large island. And so he did a lot of visual surveys and counting from different patches of grass throughout the island. And he took back a couple of vouchers from each one just to make sure that they are the same species. So there were probably a couple hundred still around over there that he could able to count and to do some relative abundant searches for these individuals. We know from about 10 years or more of survey work across the islands that Noreen and I have been involved in that snails are disappearing really fast. So we've found populations of snails that were thought extinct where there'd be, you know, 50 or 100 or as many as 300. And they've disappeared completely within less than five years. And it's really difficult to say why or even understand why. It's just a number of factors. And so having a population, while some people might go, wow, hundreds of them there, that doesn't even come close to comparing to what those populations were probably like. 200 years ago or even 100 years ago, there were probably tens of thousands of them. And so having a population of 100 snails is, in that sense, it's a really tiny population, very susceptible to extinction because 100 individuals just isn't very many individuals in a population to maintain it and can disappear very quickly. And can you describe the island that it's on? You know, what kind of environment is it? You wouldn't think it was a very hospital environment for snails. Most people, when they think of snails, they think of either garden snails or lush, wet forest. And this island's pretty dry. I mean, it does get some rain, but there's not a lot of uh, sort of forest canopy on it. It's mostly um, Aragrasis grass, which is this native grass that's endemic to the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. And it's these bunches of grass. So it looks like uh, almost like a savanna most of the island, um, with just lots of grass on it. And amazingly, these snails have sort of hung on 
in these clumps of grass at the bases of them where the little moisture is trapped and captured. So they stay there and they don't move around much. And that was one reason Dr. Cisco, when he went and was able to survey along with the fish and wildlife folks, he surveyed multiple clumps of grass along a transect across the island to see how they were doing across the island and to make sure we were dealing with only one species. Because again, a lot of times these species are difficult to identify based just on shell morphology. A lot of them look alike based on shells. And so we wanted to make sure we weren't dealing with more than one species. Are there multiple species of snails on that island? Not in this family. There's only one that we know of on this island now. Um, but there are some other species of snails. So in like the Acatonellidae, there's some species left there that are in that family. Okay. And what is the name of this new one that we've identified? So this new one we named in honor of Carl Christensen, who Dr. Young mentioned earlier, was one of the last um, museum researchers to see it in the 80s before we came along. And he has spent his life since a teenager. He first started coming to the museum when he was a teenager working with the malacology department um, in the early 60s. And so he has been dedicated to bringing the plight and understanding of, of snails in Hawaii to the forefront for his entire life. He spent his whole life doing it. So much so that when he left the museum in the 80s, he went on to Harvard to get a law degree, and he came back to Hawaii and worked as an environmental lawyer for many years, sort of really trying to strengthen laws related to conserving our natural resources and saving things like snails. So we really felt that it was sort of the right move to name it after him. So we named this Endodonta Christensenai, named after Carl Christensen. Okay, but he's not around, is he? He is around. He is? He is still around. Yep, he's still around, and he's still, like, absence the pandemic shutdown, he still comes into the museum a couple of days a week. So we also thought that was sort of befitting, because here we had this species that's sort of the last of its kind still hanging on there. And we, we tease Carl also and say, you know, he's one of the old malacologists, and he's still coming in and still hanging on despite everything. So it's definitely a befitting name. He mentioned that, you know, he always had a particular fondness for this group of snails anyway. He had a passion for understanding them, and he's he sort of traveled all over the Pacific and seen them, and so he, he felt really honored, I think, that, that this one was named in his honor. We have been hearing from Kenneth Hayes and Erin Jung, who work at the Bishop Museum. Uh, they were talking about the recent efforts to identify one of our native Hawaiian snails that was threatened with extinction. Uh, a congratulations to Carl Christensen, who... Uh, they've named a snail after. Well, that's it for today. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa takes you into the weekend for an Aloha Friday show. Got questions about anything you may have heard on our air? Call our Talkback line. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.